Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Sira podcast, which is only for sponsors and patrons of the Islamic History podcast. This is episode number 18. Just a quick um, update or recap of this episode. We will be discussing year three of the Hijra. We will discuss the assassination of two of the Prophet's enemies. We will also discuss some of the events leading up to the Battle of Uhud and then a little bit of the battle itself. However, just like with the Battle of Badr, the Battle of Uhud will be a replay from an earlier episode. So there is going is going to be broken into two different episodes. In this episode, I will, of course, discuss the things I mentioned already. And then for the lead up to the Battle of Uhud, that will be about 10, 15 minutes or so of an earlier episode. And then in next week's episode, it will be the full Battle of Uhud, but that will also be a replay from an earlier episode in which I covered the battle in depth. So, inshallah, you will enjoy this and you will learn a lot. So let's begin by discussing these two assassinations. The first one that we will discuss, these both, of course, took place in the year, in the third year of the Hijra, the third year of the Prophet's migration to Medina. The first one was the assassination, the assassination of Ka'ab ibn al-Ashraf. Kaab was a Jewish man who lived in Medina, but he was upset about the Muslim victory at Badr. He was really upset about the whole Muslim enterprise in general. He did not like the fact that Prophet Muhammad wasallam, was now pretty much the ruler of Mecca. He did not like the growing power and authority of the Muslims, and he pretty much did not like Islam in general. So he was upset about the Muslim victory at Badr. He was hoping and rooting for the Quraysh to win. When they did not, he began to rouse the other Arabs, those who were still in Mecca and those who were in Medina who were not quite on the Prophet's side. We mentioned the hypocrites before. He began to rouse them again to fight the Muslims. And one of the things he did to try to Rouse their uh, rouse up their feelings and try to get people uh, upset and wanting to harm the Muslims was to compose poetry. Some of it was to encourage the Arabs to fight against the Muslims. Others of it, however, was really more or less just insulting the Muslims of Medina. And in particular, for some reason, he took aim at the Muslim women of Medina for some reason. And one of the people he included in his in his poetry, one of the women he included was Umm al-Fadl, who we mentioned was the wife of Abbas, who was the uncle of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. We don't know if it was the uh, poetry that he wrote about Umm al-Fadl, which uh, concluded the Prophet, which led the Prophet to order his assassination, or if it was just a, an accumulation of events by Ka'ab ibn Ashraf. But whatever the case may be, at some point, his encouraging of the Arabs to rise up against the Muslims, his constant insults of the Muslims, his desire to, his obvious ability to move back and forth between Mecca and Medina as a Jew and also living within the Jewish tribes. He was able to blend in with them and be protected by them. The prophet saw him as an, as an evident danger. Uh, because of he was he was Jewish himself, he be, he could easily go back and forth between the Jewish tribes, and the Jewish tribes in Medina would protect him. And 
that was a problem for the Muslims. So the prophet pretty much made a declaration, asked somebody to take him out. The prophet literally put a hit out on him. He asked someone to kill, uh, to assassinate Ka'ab ibn Ashraf. And the Sahaba, who or the companion who volunteered, was a member of the Aus clan from Medina, one of the Ansar. His name was Muhammad ibn Maslama. He volunteered to take to take on this mission by the prophet, and the prophet gave him and he asked, he spoke to the prophet that in order to, for him to get close enough to, to Ka'ab ibn Ashraf to kill him, the, he would have to probably make up a story and perhaps lie. And the prophet gave him permission to lie if necessary in order to complete the mission. So Ibn Maslama, his full name uh, Muhammad Ibn Maslama, Ibn Maslama, he recruited four other members of the Aus clan to go along with him to go ahead and take out Ka'ab ibn Ashraf. And I have read things online with people criticizing Prophet Muhammad wasallam for ordering this hit on Ka'ab ibn Ashraf. Um, in my opinion, this is warfare. Um, it's really it's not fair to, I mean, atrocities, if you consider the assassination of one guy, atrocities happen in war. We've seen much worse things than what you're about to see right now, or about to hear about right now in warfare throughout the history of mankind and it just so happens we have more information about prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam yet at the same time we don't have complete information because we weren't there there weren't 100 percent perfect records kept um, we have basically stories told by men who heard it from other men who heard it from other men so forth and so on so my estimation of this is while the Things that are put forward as to why the Prophet killed Ka'ab ibn Ashraf, he wasn't a combatant, a combatant, that's true. He was not an actual fighter in the ranks of the Quraysh. However, he was a mouthpiece for the Quraysh. He was a mouthpiece who was instigating warfare against the Muslims. He was drumming up the Arab anger and the Quraysh anger and trying to encourage them and promising them, promising them all sorts of things to attack the Muslims. And then he also used his poetical skills to insult and demean Muslim women. So he was an enemy in all respects of the word. And the Muslims were in a state of war against the Quraysh. They had already had one battle. It was obviously another one was going to come up soon. And Ka'ab ibn Ashraf he posed a serious security risk because he could come into Medina at will, stay among amongst the Jewish tribes and be protected, and then go back to the Quraysh and, and and spread more information to them and give them secrets about the Muslim about the Muslim um, stronghold in Medina. He was an obvious security risk just on the information we have. Which once again, I acknowledge that he was not an outright combatant. He didn't take up arms against the Muslims. Understandable, but he was still. A Muslim. I'm sorry, he was still an enemy of the Muslims and he was still a propaganda machine against the Muslims. And in warfare, very often actually, very often, armies would first and foremost take out the media and propaganda tools of the opponent. That's what they do. And hey, this is what the Prophet did, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And as an act of war, I really don't see it as, as being an issue. Uh, for me personally, I do understand there are people who see who think that just creating poetry about somebody and assaulting them is not enough to get them killed. 
But there was more to it than that. It's not just that this guy made up bad poetry about the Muslims or about Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. He was actually instigating, and he was a kind of like a fifth column, if you want to say, or a fifth, yeah, fifth column, or fourth column. I forgot the actual phrase, but he was actually a, a, a huge security risk for the Muslims in and of himself. But anyway, let's get into the details of his actual assassination. So the four companions, well, there's five of them now, Ibn Maslama and his four companions from the, the Aus clan, they um, put together a plan to get rid of Kaab ibn al-Ashraf. And their plan was to pretend to be upset with the Prophet Muhammad, to pretend to be hypocrites, basically. They were being hypocrites about being hypocrites, if you, if you want to take it that way. So they pretended to be hypocrites, pretending to disagree with the Prophet, and use that to gain Kaab ibn al-Ashraf's trust and get close enough to him to try to uh, do him in. And uh, one of them, his name was Abu Naila. Abu Naila was the person to put out the story. So he met with Kaab ibn Ashraf. They kind of knew each other in a way. He met with Kaab ibn Ashraf and began to complain about the Prophet and discuss about how much he hated the new Muslim regime. And Kaab ibn Ashraf was all ears. He was like, I told you guys about this. I told you, man, told you this man is going to bring nothing but trouble to you. You guys should have listened to me. And then look at the situation you got yourself in. And so uh, Abu Naila, he did this just to get close to Kaab ibn Ashraf. And then, as they were discussing, he offered to buy some some food from Kaab ibn Ashraf. One of his, one of the ruses, one of the stories he made up was that they were suffering from food because of the Prophet's policies, and so he off offered to buy some food from Kaab ibn Ashraf. So Kaab ibn Ashraf, he wanted a guarantee. Uh, Abu Naila did not have the money right at that time. He wanted to get take possession of the food and they promised to pay him later and Kaab ibn Ashraf said I'll give you the food but you have to give me one of your children as a guarantee which is a little low down if you want to look at it that way uh, to basically say I'll give you the food but give me one of your children as a hostage <laughs> till you pay me back that's a little a, a little creepy if you if you ask me but anyway Abu Naila said that um, no I'm not going to give you one of my kids but instead I can do I'll give you some armor and they agreed on the, on that, and their plan was to meet later on that night, and um, Abu Naila will hand over the armor to make the trade. So later on that night, Abu Naila and Ibn Maslama and the others, they went to meet up with Kaab Ibn Ashraf. And I believe Kaab Ibn Ashraf was a member of the Banu Nadir, one of the Jewish tribes in Medina. Later on that night, the uh, five companions who were uh, who had put together the plan, they went to meet Kaab ibn Ashraf in the vicinity or in the in the uh, neighborhood of of um, Banu Nadir, and Abu Naila he was the first one to go out. He went to Kaab ibn Ashraf's house and began to call his name. Kaab ibn Ashraf was sleeping, but his wife woke him. She kind of hinted at she didn't feel, really feel good about this, but Kaab ibn Ashraf was like, I'm, I'm surrounded by a bunch of my own people. How are they going to hurt me? I'll be fine. And so Kaab ibn Ashraf, he went out and it was just him and Abu Naila and they started walking and talking and Abu Naila was basically leading him towards the section, uh, the area where the other Muslims were, where they're going to ambush him. When they had gotten a sufficient distance away from uh, Kaab ibn Ashraf's house, Abu Naila 
pretended to smell Ka'ab ibn Ashraf's hair. He began to like rub his fingers through Ka'ab ibn Ashraf's hair saying, what's on your hair? It smells so nice. It smells so good. And he did this a couple of times. And then at the right moment, he grabbed Ka'ab ibn Ashraf by the hair very forcefully, very hard, and began to bring him down, try to drag him down to the ground. And when he, while he was doing that, the other Muslims, they jumped out and began attacking Ka'ab ibn Ashraf. Now, the thing to remember is that while the uh, members of the Aus clan, while they were from Medina and they were warriors, they weren't professional hitmen. And so they weren't spies or anything. So their attacks weren't really coordinated. And they were attacking him, trying to swing the swords at him, trying to poke him with knives and stuff. And it was kind of messy from the, <laughs> from the narration and, and the uh, histories. It was kind of messy. They really, they were hurting him, but they weren't, it wasn't a quick kill. It was really kind of a, a, a uncoordinated, clumsy kind of mess for a while. And Ka'ab and Ashraf, while they were doing this, he was yelling and screaming, saying, they're attacking me, they're hurting me, they're trying to kill me, help, help. And the Muslims, they have to go ahead and, and wrap this thing up quick. In fact, the Muslims were so... Um, uh, so uncoordinated and so undisciplined and planned in this attack, one of them in trying to uh, cut Ka'ab ibn Ashraf actually wound up cutting the leg of one of the other Muslim companions. And it was really kind of sloppy. But finally, Ibn Maslama, he realized that eventually the other members of Ka'ab ibn Ashraf's tribe will come out to help him. And he had to take care of this quick. So he took out a knife and quickly stabbed Ka'ab ibn Ashraf several times to death until he died. And then the rest of them, they all ran away, including the guy who had been hurt in the leg. And that was the end of Ka'ab ibn Ashraf. So now that leads us to the next assassination, uh, the next hit put out by the Prophet wasallam. And this was for a hit or assassination of Abu Rafia ibn Abi al-Huqaiq. Now, um, ibn, Abi, ibn Abi al-Huqaiq, he was also uh, a Jewish person, just like um, Ka'ab ibn Ashraf. However, uh, let's just call him Abu Rafi. Abu Rafi, though he was Jewish, he did not live in Medina. He actually lived within a fortress about 95 miles north of Medina. It was in, the fortress was called Khaybar. And many years later, the Prophet ﷺ will invade this fortress of Khaybar many years later. But for right now, the fortress of Khaybar, and when we say fortress, kind of think of it like a fortified town. It had like, of course, a citadel, which is like the, kind of like a castle, the main point of of strength for the whole uh, community. But when we say fortress, it was not just one single building. It was a walled building. It was a, a walled community, basically, or a walled section of a, a walled collection of houses and homes. And there was, of course, one citadel, which would be the primary portion. But within this walled area, this walled neighborhood, they will also have gardens and shops and stuff like that. Though, of course, in order to get in and out, you had to get through the wall. And then you also had to get into the citadel in order to actually um, get to this final, in order to actually hurt um, Abu Rafi. I'm getting ahead of myself. So now the Aus, the assassination of Ka'ab ibn Ashraf was primarily done by members of the Aus clan of Medina. And as we mentioned, of course, there is there has always been a rivalry 
a pretty deadly rivalry between the Aus and the Khazraj, both the two major Arab tribes of Medina. So now the Khazraj were feeling a little bit left out. Uh, the Aus had gone on ahead and went on the secret mission for the Prophet wasallam, and the Khazraj, they wanted to do the same thing. So they had to think about, well, who can we kill? <laughs> I hate to say it like that, but that's pretty much what they were saying. Who can we kill to keep up with the um, Aus? We can't have them doing all of the all of the secret missions for the Prophet. So finally, um, five Khazraj, Khazraji men, five men, they came to the Prophet and asked him for permission to kill Abu Rafi. They recognized that Abu Rafi was an enemy of Islam who they could legitimately take out. Now, Abu Rafi, he once he was perhaps even more dangerous than Kaab ibn Ashraf. Abu Rafi, he once again he had his, he had command of this huge fortress. Though it was far away from Medina, it was pretty much impenetrable for most of the Arab military at that time. Abu Rafi, just like um, Kaab ibn Ashraf, Abu Rafi was also making plans to invade Medina. Yeah, but he didn't have to go ahead and try to co coordinate with the Quraysh, even though he most certainly was doing that. He had the strength and power to do it on his own because he had this huge community, this fortress, basically this walled city of people who were completely behind him that he was in charge of. He could have led them against Medina anytime he wanted. And at this point in time, the Muslims would have had a hard time defeating Abu Rafia. Uh, because the only thing that really kept Abu Rafi from really going down to attack the Muslims was just the pure distance. It was 95 miles away. That's the only thing that was keeping them, keeping him from um, from going down there right away. But he was stockpiling weapons and preparing for an invasion of Medina. So in a way, you can kind of see this as a preemptive strike by the Prophet wasallam to break down uh, the the leadership of Khaybar, that's the, where the fortress and the community there where Abu Rafi was, this is a, a chance for the Prophet to destroy their leadership, cause confusion, and set them back from their ultimate plan of invading Medina. The Prophet already had to deal with the Quraysh, who were now a much bigger threat, but then he also had to deal with the um, with the fortress of Khaybar and the, and the Jewish tribe of Khaybar trying to come down and invade Medina also. So the Prophet gave permission to the Khazraji men to go out and get rid of um, Abu Rafia, but he gave them strict warnings because they knew he knew that they were now going into a uh, a community outside of Medina. They will have to probably do a lot more work to get to Abu Rafia. There will be they had security. It was a fortress. It was a citadel. Uh, they were the the people of Khaybar were not weaklings. They were not unfamiliar with acts of war. They had security and things there, but the prophet warned them not to kill any women and children. And the, Khazraj, the Khazraji men, the companions from the clan of Khazraj, they agreed. And so they, um, they went off to go ahead and take care of Abu Rafia. So they did a little bit of espionage work, a little bit of uh, planning beforehand. They got to know the community, got to know their basic um, time schedule and how things usually uh, went along there. So they, they planned and they surveilled in a way. They surveilled the community for a while to understand the ins and outs and how people, the timings of when the gates will close and 
who was in charge of what and their escape routes and things like that. This was a little bit more coordinated than the one than the attack against Ka'ab, Ka'ab ibn Ashraf. So they were a little bit they had a little bit better planning in this case. So the men from Khazraj, they managed to sneak into the gate just before it closed, just as the guard was about to close the gate for the night because it was the end of the day. They had done their surveillance. They had gathered the information. They were now ready to put the plan into action. So just before the guard was going to close the gate to Khaybar, the, um, the five Khazraj men, they went running up and said, let us in, let us in. They pretended to be Bedouins and the guard let them in. And so now they were inside of the fortress of Khaybar. Abu Rafia himself, he stayed in one of the highest levels of the fortress. And so the, Khaz the Khazraj men, the companions um, who were carrying out the mission, they had to uh, basically pretend to be Bedouins looking for Abu Rafia. And so they went climbing the steps and the levels, getting to the higher levels of the fortress until they found out where Abu Rafia was staying. So they waited around until the uh, all of, everyone's pretty much ready to go to bed and people were locking their doors and turning in for the night. And the Khazraj, actually, they went through and locked the door, secretly locked the doors as people turned in and closed their doors to go to sleep. The Khazraj, they went to every single door within the fortress and locked them so nobody could come out of these doors on this level on the floor where Abu Rafia was. So finally, they only had to deal with Abu Rafia, and he was in the room with his wife. And they, the Khazraj, they pretend they were once again pretending to to be Bedouins, and they asked the wife, they asked for permission to speak with Abu Rafia, and asked the wife to give them some privacy so they could talk with him about man matters. And she complied. She was once again a little bit skeptical, but she complied and she walked away. And Abu Rafia, he invited them in. And it was completely dark. It was at night. There was no lamps or anything. And the Khazraj men, they entered Abu Rafia's room. And as the narration states, the only reason they were able to see him was because of the whiteness of his skin. That's how dark it was. And so once they were inside Abu Rafia's room, the five men, they all jumped him and began attacking him. And once again, it was uncoordinated, somewhat unplanned. And it was also dark, so there's there lots of confusion. They... Uh, uh, the wife was screaming. She, of course, heard heard them attacking her husband. Abu Rafia was doing his best to escape, and he was screaming. And all people in all the, on all the floors, they hear the screaming, but they can't get out the rooms because the doors are locked. And so the five companions, and they're swinging wildly in the dark, trying to pin down um, Abu Rafia and kill him. And finally, it was kind of messy, very much in a way, just like the, the previous assassination. But Finally, one of them, they stuck his, their sword through Abu Rafi's midsection, basically impaling him and killing him. And now they had to make their escape. So now they have to run through this fortress, which is once again dark now. There's confusion. Their adrenaline is high. They're scared. One of the companions stumbles down the steps and he thinks he breaks his leg. The narration says he broke his leg, but he didn't really break his leg. He just bruised it very, very badly, perhaps twisted an ankle. But he he's whatever the happened, he's injured and they're running and they're trying to get away before the guards come. And so they run out the fortress and they take and they jump into a ditch and there's confusion. The alarm has been sounded now and the wife is screaming. Abu Rafia is dead and everybody's running around. They got torches and everything trying to find these uh, assassins and looking all, all over the place. But eventually they give up. The companions are hiding in the ditch. No one ever finds them. 
And all they can do now, they, um, the, the Jews of Chaibat, all they can do now is improve their security for one thing and also bury um, Abu Rafiat. When the daylight comes, the companions sneak out of the ditch. Actually, I don't think they wait until daylight. I believe they wait until the, um, the commotion had died down and everyone had returned to their beds. And the two companions, uh, the, the five companions, they leave the ditch and begin making their way back to Medina. So that was the story of the two assassinations uh, that the Prophet ﷺ put out on the, these two men during the third year of the Hijrah. There were a few other events uh, before we get into the before we get into the Battle of Uhud. One was the expedition of Al Qurada. This was led by Zayd ibn Haritha, who we know at this point in time was still considered the Prophet's adopted son. Zayd led a raid on a Quraysh caravan, and the caravan had they had heard from their sources. Uh, the Prophet had a pretty good. Um, intelligence network between Mecca and Medina. They found out that the um, that this caravan was carrying a load of silver and Zayd ibn Haritha, he led a, a car he led a raid against this caravan. They captured the silver and most of the goods of the caravan, but the Qurayshi leaders who were who were escorting the caravan, they managed to escape back to Mecca. The other major event actually took place after the Battle of Uhud, but we'll discuss it now. Um, because Battle of Ahud will pretty much take up the rest of this episode as well as almost all of the next episode. Uh, the other major event for the third year of the Hijrah was the prophet, the prophet's marriage to Hafsa bint Omar ibn Khattab, that is. Hafsa was the daughter of Omar ibn Khattab. Before her marriage to the Prophet, وسلم, she was married to a companion named Khunais ibn Hudatha, and she had married Khunais in Mecca. Both her and Khunais both converted to Islam. Khunais, who was a devout Muslim, he first immigrated with uh, that group of Muslims, uh, which included Uthman and, and Jafar and, other, and others. He first immigrated with them to Abyssinia to escape the persecution in Mecca. And eventually when the Prophet ﷺ made his way to Medina, they then migrated to Medina to join him there. So Khunais immigrated twice both to Abyssinia and then to Medina. He was one of those few people who did that. There weren't too many. While in Medina, he took part in the Battle of Badr and the Battle of Ahud. He, of course, survived the Battle of Badr. However, he was killed at the Battle of Ahud. And we will go into the details of the battle, of course, uh, mostly in the next episode. But I don't think we're going to get into the details of Khunais's actual death and his um, his death at this battle, I don't think I have that, that information. Suffice it to say, he was killed at the Battle of Ahud. So now, Omar's daughter Hafsa is a widow. And so Omar, and she's very young, by the way, she was only 18 years old at the time. And so Omar wants to find her another husband. And so first he goes to Abu Bakr and asks Abu Bakr if he would like to marry her. And Abu Bakr doesn't say anything, which is pretty much an, a no without being rude. So Abu Bakr doesn't say anything. And so Omar, he's kind of perplexed. He then goes on to Uthman. And he asks Uthman the same thing. Is he willing to marry his daughter Hafsa? Uthman straight out declines. He says he's not ready to marry right now. And um, Uthman is now 
sorry, Omar is now even more upset. So first Abu Bakr rejects him, now Uthman rejects him. Omar is pretty upset. How's nobody marrying his beautiful young daughter? And they're all friends. They are they're all in this thing together. They it was a pretty much an expectation of the Muslim men that when um, there was a widow or when a woman's husband died, if they could, that they would go ahead and marry her in order to give her protection and security and, and support and that sort of thing. So Omar was a little upset that um, these two friends of his, who were all close companions of Prophet Muhammad وسلم, were not uh, helping him out in his time of need, not willing to uh, help out his daughter also. So he went to complain to Prophet Muhammad وسلم, about what was going on. And so the Prophet said that, don't worry, Omar, I'm paraphrasing here, don't worry, Omar, she will marry someone better, and Uthman will marry, she will marry someone better than Uthman, and Uthman will marry somebody better than her. And this is an indication, and Omar got the, got the reference, this is an indication that the Prophet وسلم, was going to marry Hafsa himself. And that's why Abu Bakr and Uthman both declined. They had heard from the Prophet that he was interested in marrying Hafsa after her husband died. And so they both declined or refused to answer, but they didn't want to give away the Prophet's secret, that he had something that he had confided, confided to them in, in confidence. They didn't want to give that away. And Omar didn't know that, but now Omar was happy now. He was quite happy that her that his daughter was going to now marry the Prophet, and he wasn't expecting that. He would have been happy if it was just Abu Bakr. But now that she was going to marry the Prophet, that was even greater, because now he, he of course, loved the Prophet more than anyone else. Uh, and so this was a, a, a great thing for Omar, a great thing for Hafsa. Now, we gotta we got to look at the reality of it all. There may have been some political reasoning for it. No doubt the Prophet وسلم, saw this as an opportunity to bring him and Omar together as Omar was one of his staunchest and closest companions, one of his strongest supporters. And of course, the Prophet وسلم, saw this as an opportunity to bring their two families together and and bring them even make sure they're both more intertwined in this mission of establishing Islam. So no doubt there are some political reasons for it, and that's fine, that's the way it happened. But nonetheless, the point is that Prophet Muhammad وسلم, now married Hafsa, and he now had three wives, Sauda, Aisha, and now Hafsa bint Omar ibn al-Khattab. And so that will conclude most of the information for the battle, I'm sorry, for the third year of the Hijrah. And now we're going to go into the details of the Battle of Uhud. The rest of this episode will focus on the events leading up to the Battle of Uhud, and then the next episode will be the actual battle. And once again, as we mentioned at the top of this episode, the rest of this episode will be a replay, and next episode will also be a replay. So basically, these, these two episodes, this information about the Battle of Uhud was recorded years ago, but it's this, the information is the same. It's still good. It's still interesting. I'm sure you will still love it, inshallah, or at least enjoy it. You will learn a lot from it. So no need for me to rehash old things. I'll just bring up the two episodes, and I hope you enjoy it. So this will be the last uh, you hear of me for this episode, at least directly, um, uh, for this current recording. What you're going to hear next is basically a replay. So until next time, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. With Abu Jahl's death, Abu Sufyan now became the de facto leader of Mecca. People looked to him as a wise one who had initially discouraged the people 
from going out in battle once they realized there was no need to fight anymore because the caravan was back safely at home. He was also well respected as the leader of the Umayyah clan, which was one of the most noble and most powerful clans in Mecca. He was also a very well accomplished and very successful businessman. And so he was a good choice by the Quraysh as a leader of their city, the city of Mecca. Now came the time for them to plan their revenge. And this time the Quraysh weren't going to play games. The first time around, they were led by Abu Jal, who didn't take this thing seriously. While he really did seriously want to get revenge against the Muslims and he wanted to make a lesson out of them, and he wanted to also teach them a lesson as well, he himself didn't take the battle seriously. Abu Sufyan would not make that mistake. He would make sure, to the best of his ability, that the odds for the Quraysh would be heavily stacked in favor of them over the Muslims. The next time he went out for battle, which would be basically just a year after the Battle of Badr, he would make sure to cover all ends. He would not make the same mistake that Abu Jal did, treating this thing as a romp in the park and a lark and time for festivity and dancing girls. Abu Sufyan was going to make sure that when he came face to face with the Muslims, he would do everything within his power to ensure that the Quraysh had the upper hand. But let's go back to the beginning of our story. How does all of this tie into Wahshi ibn Harb? Well, during the battle of Badr, Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib, the uncle of Prophet Muhammad wasallam, was fighting on the side of the Muslims. And he was a very accomplished fighter. He was a hunter and he had the attitude to match. Now, perhaps if the Quraysh had somebody like that on their side, maybe they would have fared a little bit better. They would have still lost, but perhaps they would have maybe only lost 60 men instead of 70. Who knows? But Hamza was on the side of the Muslims and he killed several of the Quraysh leaders, several of the Quraysh soldiers, including Taima ibn Adi, who was the uncle of Jibir ibn Mu'tim, who was the master of Wahshi ibn Harb. And that's where all of this comes back full circle. When the Quraysh army returns home and the people of Mecca realize how many of their men were killed and taken prisoner, a great cry of despair, a sob of sorrow rose up from the city of Mecca as the people lamented and wailed at the loss of so many of their fine men. And they vowed revenge against the Muslims of Medina. They vowed revenge against the Prophet Muhammad And they immediately began to make plans for their revenge. But for some people, they took it a little bit more personally. One of those who took it most personally was Abu Sufyan's wife, Hind bint Utbah. She took it personally because her father, her brother, and her uncle were all killed in the Battle of Badr. 
And to make matters worse, they were all killed by the same man, Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib. So between her and Wahshi's master, Jubair ibn Mu'tam, they came up with a plan for the next engagement against the Muslims of how they were going, they were going to get revenge against Hamza. No matter what the outcome was, whether the Quraysh won or lost, they wanted to make sure that they got revenge against Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib. And so they decided, they decided to hire a hitman. And their hitman was one of the best spear throwers with one of the most accurate eyes ever known in the Arabian Peninsula. And that man was none other than Wahshi ibn Harb, the slave of Jibar ibn Mu'tam. They came up with a plan and they offered Wahshi ibn Harb, who really had no disagreement and no anger and no reason to be against the Muslims whatsoever. Perhaps deep down inside, he agreed with much of what Prophet Muhammad was saying, but he perhaps didn't have the strength and conviction of character that his brother from the same nation, Bilal, had to defy his master and go out with the Muslims. Perhaps he didn't have that same affair, but certainly when he heard the talk of Prophet Muhammad speaking about the equality of men before Allah, commanding men to treat their slaves with kindness and respect, and that only way people could be better than another people is by righteousness of character and their deeds. Certainly, this, is, this had to affect him. He had to believe in something like this. But perhaps he just didn't have the strength of heart and the conviction that Bilal had to stand up against his master in spite of the obvious punishment that would have come his way. Perhaps he just wasn't that kind of person. Whereas Bilal was. So Wahshi really had no argument and no disagreement with the Muslims. But he, like many people, did not like being a slave. So Jabir ibn Mu'tam offered him a little something. He offered him his freedom. He offered him his freedom if Wahshi ibn Harb would do one single deed. Get rid of Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib in the battle of Uhud, which would come one year from now. At that time, of course, nobody knew it would be called the battle of Uhud, but that's what happened. And Hen bin Zodba, she sweetened the pot by adding in another little deal. She told Wahshi ibn Harb that if he would get rid of Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib, she would give him several of her gold bracelets. So Wahshi would get out of this whole ordeal, not just his freedom, but also a small fortune. So Wahshi was a hired hitman, and his target was Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib. Inshallah, in the next episode of The Elm Show, we will discuss the Battle of Uhud and see what happens when Wahshi ibn Harb takes payment to carry out his assassination plot. Inshallah, this will continue in the next episode of The Am Show. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashadun la ilaha la anta nastaghfiruka wa natubi ilayk. 
Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.